Welcome to Center for China Studies podcast series. I'm Li Minghua, and today it's my great honor to invite my colleague, Professor John Lagaway, to join the conversation. So John, you published a book entitled China is a Religious State. This is very contradictory to the conventional perception about China, because the Chinese society was quite secular. What made you make that claim? What should we know about the Chinese society? Because it seems that we have some misunderstanding about it. Well, I think I have to start here from the beginning. And the beginning for me, first I did my undergraduate at the University of Michigan, but it was mainly learning to speak Chinese. And then I went to Harvard in 1968. And at Harvard, what I like to say is I got a good Confucian education. I was at that time interested in Shenqin Jishui, early Chinese philosophy and early Chinese literature, and I did my actual PhD uh, with James Robert Hightire, who was a specialist of Tao Yuanming, uh, on a book which dates to the Ho Han, or the latter Han, called Mu Yue Chunqiu. And so I was really in classical studies. At that time, I say it was a very Confucian education. I could say it was a very Jesuit education, because the vision of China was exactly that that the Jesuits had propagated in the West that was taken over by the philosophes, the philosophers, especially Voltaire, and so on, who desired ardently to get out from under the Catholic Church, okay? And so when they learned from the Jesuit letters that China was not a religious state, precisely, that Confucianism was not a religion, this was very pleasing to the people writing the encyclopedia in the 18th century that uh, then precedes the French Revolution. So that very strong, so what they saw through the letters of the Jesuits was that China was like Plato's Republic come true, where people of merit who had no church relationship or institution. And of course, this is because the Jesuits, the story of course is that Mario Ricci enters China it's from Macau, but he first dresses as a Buddhist, as a Buddhist monk. By the time he gets to Xiaoguan, he's understood that the Buddhists are not uh, uh, first class anymore in China, uh, and that it's, the world is ruled by Confucian officials associated with the whole, what's called Daoxia, or Neo-Confucianism of the Song Dynasty. So by the time he got to Xiaoguan in northern Guangdong, he switched out of his Buddhist frock into a Ru uh, Confucian one. So, and then he goes on, of course, to Beijing. And their idea was to convert China from the top down. This has something to do with French history and European history, but anyway, that was their, that was their strategy. And of course, they converted some very high officials, and even Kangxi Emperor was later on interested. But it was crucial for their Chinese counterparts that they could continue to do the sacrifices to the ancestors without causing trouble. In other words, they could remain Confucian while becoming Catholic. That was what it came down to. And so they convinced the Jesuits, basing themselves, in fact, on what is said in the book Shunzi from the 3rd century BC, that for the elite is just about commemoration, just about remembering the ancestors, okay? And that therefore it had no religious characteristic whatsoever. So this set in cement, <laughs> before there was cement, it set in cement the idea that Confucianism was not a religion, Taoism was just a hopeless mess of uh, superstition, uh, they didn't use that term yet, but uh, came down to that, 
and that Buddhism had been glorious, had reached glorious heights in the Tang Dynasty, but from then on it had been downhill all the way, and of course it was from outside. So that meant that China was this great, unique exception in world history that it had never been based on a religion. Well, that's what I learned at Harvard, and that was just fine with my own uh, personal view of the world at the time. But then, for personal reasons, my wife being French, I decided I wanted to move to France. And I was looking around, and I had read a lot of all of the works that the French at the time were the only ones who were writing about Chinese religion and thought. Americans were much more focused on institutional history and so on. But there were especially two professors, Max Kaltenmark and Christopher Schiffer, who were teaching the history of Tao Zhao, Taoism, Taoism as a religion now, not a philosophy, because of course always the distinctions made between Lao Zhuang, the early, and uh, they're the philosophers, and that's a high and glorious thing, but then it went uh, downhill too, and it turned into this superstitious religion. By attending their courses, I discovered very quickly that what I had learned at Harvard was a very, very biased, and I would say totally wrong, understanding of Chinese history. And so I always like to start there. I did this uh, just recently at the beginning of class, and I said to the students, please raise your hand. How many of you think that Confucianism is a religion? No one raises their hand. They all have been taught exactly the same thing. And I insist here that it's not the Jesuits who pulled this one off on everybody. They pulled it off on the West. But the Confucians themselves, by the end of the Ming, which is what we're talking about, they had become us Confucians wudu, and they were increasingly anti-Buddhist and Taoist. And so this uh, fit their OC, their vision of themselves and their place in Chinese kingdom. So I go to Paris and I follow their courses and I discover that this is simply not the case. First of all, Taoism has an incredibly rich philosophical and ritual tradition, which can be traced back to the Han, but I'm sure we could, if we had the text, we could prove that, in fact, it derives from imperial religion of the Han. All kinds of things have shown this, okay? No use to go into that here. But so that this so-called uh, Nishin or whatever this so-called was a very, very rich religion. And so the people who at that time, so in the early, well, mid-70s, since I moved to France in 1975, uh, the very few pioneers who were studying Taoism started to call it the Tushin Tujang, the higher religion. So the native higher religion of China. So this, of course, is already one complete reversal. Then increasingly Buddhist studies, they're finding out the same thing that Buddhism, on the contrary, became very different, of course, from the Sung An, becoming much even more popular religion. Not a much more, because Buddhism was always very popular among the people. But the most important thing of all is that to say that Confucianism is not a religion is what I now call a form of insanity. Insanity means disconnect from reality, okay? In what sense? Because the Confucianism was from the very beginning, that is say from the Han Dynasty, was associated with five classics, Wujing. One of them is the Li Ji, or the Book of Rites. And the Book of Rites is the basis for state religion all through imperial history. State religion is what? It is the state that recognizes certain local gods, enters them into what we call a city, and that is to say a register of sacrifices, and then they are now legitimate and everything not in it is illegitimate. 
And this is something, in fact, that preceded the Han Dynasty. I think, for example, the Shanghai Jing is, in fact, already one which is pre-Han, but that doesn't matter. The point is, is that these sacrifices are blood sacrifices. So both Buddhism and Taoism, two other higher religions, where we speak of Sun Jiao or three teachings, they've gone through what we call the sacrificial revolution, and so they do vegetarian offerings. So they don't kill life because... All religion is about saving life, not <laughs> so they say, how can you kill life to save it? But Confucianism, because it's got these archaic scriptures, which come from the Zhou dynasty, they carry on with blood sacrifices. Not only for the state, so when the Son of Heaven goes to do the ritual on the Tiantan in Beijing, he also has what's called the Sun Lao. He's also a sacrifice of three bullock, goat, and a pig. And also the sacrifices to the ancestors. So Confucianism is inseparable from the state religion and from the sacrifice to the ancestors. And we have to use the word sacrifice because they're killing animals and sacrificing their blood and their and so on. So to say that Confucianism is not a religion is, is simply false. That's the first step in what I call my conversion. <laughs> that is to say. And then I started to do field work because very early on, uh, I was, as I say, I started really going to classes in France in 1976, January. 1977, a Taoist priest uh, was the brother, adopted brother of uh, Christopher Schiffer, came to Paris, and he did rituals. And I watched these rituals, I participated in these rituals, and I saw that this is an absolutely extraordinarily rich cosmological ritual tradition and I started to rethink Lao Tzu, for example, talking about Bu Yan Zhu Jiao. Well, that the Bu Yan Zhu Jiao is about ritual. So that was the first step. And this actually made me extremely interested in ritual. I should say here I was raised a Calvinist, okay? The Calvinists are the most anti-ritual of the reformers of the uh, 16th century. And so I was brought up to think that ritual is fake, it's purely external, it has nothing to do with heart dispositions and so on and so on. Well, here I could see that this thing was all about ritual, and so I was going to have to rethink what I had been taught, not only at Harvard, but also in my Calvinist childhood. So I'd say that's the first step. But then I start to, because I see these beautiful rituals, I'm attracted to them, and so I start going to Taiwan to study. And these jiao that they do, they last 25 hours over three days, sometimes five days. They're extraordinarily beautiful music, cosmologically organized dances and so on. It's extremely interesting. And so I was totally hooked. I was totally hooked on doing field work on Taoism, just Taoism. I was not interested at that point in Buddhism as well. Okay, so let's say we go fast forward now. I started to go to China in 1985. I first started visiting all of the famous Taoist mountains and Buddhist mountains. So that's another dimension altogether of Chinese religion. But one thing led to another, and I ended up, starting in 1992, organizing fieldwork in the Hakka area of China, the Kejia area. And this was what I came to call Jinti Yanzhou. That is to say, a study of the Chinese society, local society as a whole. And what do you find there? Well, I would say that having come from a literary background, my reason for doing this in the first place is, okay, I've studied Taoism now for 15 years, especially the history of Taoist ritual, how it's done still today. That's a product that is written and produced. 
Well, in literature, what do you think about? Well, you'd like to know who Shakespeare was and what led him to write this kind of play. And the same thing is true, but who is the author of ritual? The author of ritual is society. It's society as a whole. All the books in the Taoist canon, they're almost all anonymous, especially the ritual ones. So if the author is Chinese society, which is, of course is a very Durkheimian kind of thing to say, if the author is Chinese society, then what is Chinese society all about? Because there's the Sun Jiao, these three teachings. And you go into Chinese society, and of course you find that Confucianism is active in the ancestor sacrifices in every village. Buddhism is active, at least they'll have a, for the women of the village, a temple for Guan Yin. And Taoism is active, uh, doing exorcisms and so on. But of course you also discover very quickly that there is a fourth religion that is what I call the Wu Min Jiao, the unnamed religion. And that, in fact, it is the most widespread religion, the religion of the people, which in fact goes back to ancient spirit mediumism of the pre-Han period. And this actually led to my last conference organized with David Four called the Temple-Centric Society, how in the Song Dynasty emerges a Chinese society which is built around temples. And these are temples to the gods indifferent of what origin these gods are, just they have to be the protector of the local society. This study then, in the context of large-scale projects, working with Chinese collaborators, including Tom Weidun from a Chinese University starting in 1997, makes you discover a Chinese society where religion is absolutely everywhere. So that's one dimension. But the other is that from the very beginning of my own study of Taoist Taoism as a religion. So in Paris, I worked on a book called the Wushan Biao, and it dates to the Beizhou, the Northern Zhou, so late 6th century, and there were debates at court about uh, the San Zhao, especially between Buddhism and Taoism, to decide which religion would be the best for governing. And they decided, or the Zhou Wudi decided to mieh, to um, forbid Buddhism, and he made Taoism the state religion. Didn't last for long, probably instituted around 574. He dies in 580, his son overturns it. But the point was is that in this Wushan Biao, which was originally an encyclopedia in 100 chapters, there is a whole group of ritual texts, and they are state, states in a commentary at the very beginning, future, that is to say written by the emperor. Of course, he didn't write it, but it has his imprimatur on it. So I says, okay, so the result, you have a state debate, and then the result is that a Taoism is selected as the state religion, exactly like Christianity was chosen by the Roman empires after Constantine. Then you go further in and you discover that every single dynasty had its profound attachment to either Taoism, and it's very interesting because it's all the native dynasties, the Tang dynasty, the Song dynasty and the Ming dynasty, they all have a special cult to a Taoist god, a clearly Taoist god. And of course, the other dynasties, especially the Yuan, the Mongols, and then the Manchus, of course, they were Tibetan Buddhists. So, first of all, that the state is absolutely inseparable from the practice of religion and the recognition of a, an established religion. But we have to go farther than that, because from the very beginning, the emperor, and before him the king, is called the son of heaven. That is a religious term. And so what happens when Buddhism comes to China 
is there's a big debate whether Buddhist monks should bow down because in India they don't. Because they come from the Brahmin class and as the priestly class is superior to the kingly class, the Kshatriya, which is the warrior class. And so it comes with this political religious separation, very clear separation of political and religious power, like you could say in the Latin West uh, with the church and the state. And there's big debates. And in the South, which is generally considered to be the Chinese part of the empire at the time, there's the elite that is defending the position that no, they should not bow down. But what happens in the North, which is supposedly not Chinese, is that a monk bows down before the emperor. And the monks say, what are you doing? And he says, I'm bowing down before the living Buddha. Wow. So that means that he was son of heaven, now he is the living Buddha. And when he decides he's for Taoist, what does he do? He shoulu, he receives the Taoist registers, which make of him a jinnan, a true person. And so in fact, these Sanjiao that we like to speak of as He is united together. Well, they're what I call the united front, <laughs> that on the one hand is attacking the religion of the people, and at the same time, supporting the state. So the state, is constantly inseparable. Why? Because the linchpin of the system, the son of heaven, is the son of heaven. And so he is a high priest. He is the highest priest in the land. Just like the head of the family when he goes into the tzitan and worships the ancestors, he is a priest. So it took me a long time because this goes so against everything, all the categories that I was raised on and that in fact, we're all raised on this idea of secularization and so on, to discover that if you don't see that the Chinese state is also a church, you simply cannot understand Chinese history. And the same thing then is also true on the local level. So it's a religious state, but it's also a religious society. But for younger generation, especially those who were born after the Cultural Revolution and that is, we were told that all the religious beliefs were crashed down and we forgot about the tradition. And then when anthropologists went to the field, they come up with terms like recycling or reinvention to talk about the revival or the emergent practices of religion. But recently, a historian are also suggesting that maybe it's not revival. It has been practiced even during the Maoist time. So even during Maoist society, you can see a lot of uh, religious elements then. And during your field work, when you ask those elderly who went through those times, did you ask them about that period? Because the high Maoism was considered to be anti-religion, right? Yeah. Well, this is actually one of the very things I like to say to students. The Maoists, of course, and they engaged in Pidin Pikong, as we may all recall, so attacking Lin Biao and Kung Fu Zi. But no one was more Confucian in their attitudes than the Kuomintang elite and the CCP elite. How so? They carried on the war against the people's religion. They carried on, and so the Wenhua Dagaming is in fact the ultimate expression of what the elite has been trying to do, namely to destroy, to obliterate the religion of the people. And so that's the first thing to say. And of course, it continued to uh, in many, especially in the countryside, 
starting already in 1989, I actually saw Daoist Zhao being done in uh, villages in western Fujian. Okay, so first of all, it was definitely not wiped out, not destroyed. I saw some of the most extraordinary examples of religious fervor in a place called Gutian in northern Fujian, where there's a very famous cult of Lin Shui Furen that, in fact, is found here in Hong Kong and Taiwan and pretty much all over southern China, especially southeastern China. Very widespread uh, re religious, regional religious tradition, which is basically Taoist. And there, every year for her birthday, which is the same day as the Yuanxiao, the Lantern Festival, people come from villages all around, from sometimes very far away. It's southern Zhejiang. You know, they have to walk for seven days and seven nights before there were trucks and buses. And they come with their local priest, and he comes there, and in the middle of the night they arrive and they do their dances and their prayers and so on. And then they take some xiang, some incense from the burner of the Zuyao, the ancestral temple, and then they go back and they put it in their own temple to Chenjingu, Lin Shui Furen, in their home temple, in their home village. And so that, I can tell you, I think that was, in, I know, it was uh, Yuan Shao of 1990. I was there during the night. I stayed there. And you see these people coming at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I can tell you, this has a very, very profound impact because you start to think, well, clearly this means more to the people than anything else because it's about their life and their survival and the effervescence and the here and now and the joy of these people. Later on, I remember seeing also in the early 90s when the head, head at Santong and so the Taiwanese would come with their gods with Mazu, ma you know. I remember being in the airport in Taipei and there was this whole group of like a hundred Taiwanese, each with their Mazu Xiang, and they were going to take an airplane to Hong Kong and then head into China to go to Meizhou Dao to do exactly the same thing. To, it's called Guinyangjia, take the mother back to her home and get the incense and bring it with them to Taiwan. So the power for binding society together of these religious practices, which are clearly none of the above. I said it's a regional Taoist tradition, but in fact, originally, it's not Taoist at all, okay? So all of this evidence finally says, okay, I've not only got to revise my Calvinist idea about ritual, I've got to revise my assumption my automatic assumption that, of course, there is always religious power and political power, and of course, they are always separated. The fact is, is that in most places, well, for example, the Roman Empire, it's exactly, they are exactly like in the Chinese Empire. They're always completely combined, always completely combined. So it's, it was a long process. And I must say that it was like I was staring this in the face as the inevitable conclusion but it's like I, there's something in me that resisted it. I didn't want to say that. I couldn't say that. I couldn't even imagine to say it because it seemed to be so contrary to everything that everyone thought. So that's how I came to that, write that book. So just now reminds us the importance of learning from observation and doing fieldwork. And as an anthropologist, I definitely appreciate doing fieldwork to do research and gain knowledge. But for you, what is doing fieldwork like? And also because you went to China in the late 80s, 
what was it like to do field work in China then? And you went from Taiwan to mainland China. Did you see differences? And how, how did you navigate through the local society where, especially Hakka areas, people speak quite different dialect? How, yeah. how did you manage that? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things involved here. But first of all, the first thing to say is obvious and very simple. And that is that in Taiwan, it's wide open. You go and see whatever you want to see. You don't have to ask anybody's permission. You just go, go and see it. And of course, it's wide open and thousands of people. So what I just talked about in 1990, seeing in Gutian, this was very, very unusual, very unusual, even in the late 80s and early 90s. I just mentioned I saw three Zhao in the year 1989 in western Fujian, but these were in very, very pimpy, uh, remote villages. And it's because I knew that they were going to do them because I had met the Taoist priest. And so at this time, it was very difficult. I can okay, say it was very, very difficult to do field work in China at the time. But starting in 1992, I developed a relationship with the Fujian Shikayuan, and uh, we started working with Yang Yanjie, who became then my longtime collaborator. And so then I simply had a Fang Wen Xue and actually it was very helpful uh, to do that because, first of all, there's wonderful collaboration with Yang Yanjie and his father-in-law, actually, <laughs> Zhou Lifang. And when we arrived in a given county, the government had been warned ahead of time by the Waijiaobu, and so they had to take care of us, and they did take care of us. It just so happened. We were extremely fortunate that at that time there was what they called Suddenly everybody was discovering that they all spoke the same languages because before, that is to say in southern Jiangxi, uh, northern Guangzhou and so on, they all discovered, oh, we're Hakka. <laughs> I remember reading a story that said some guy in uh, Hakka here in Hong Kong, when told he was a Hakka, he says, what's that? I, I didn't. But in any how, case, how did they find out that they all speak? This well, because language? because but because they do have accents, right? Different. Yeah, accents. no, no. It's it's not a different accent. It's a different function. It's a completely different language. It's a completely different language. Uh, actually, I had started to learn Minnan, and so then I decided. Well, again, there's a long story. We've got to skip that. But I decided to start learning Hakka. But at the time, there were no materials for learning Hakka, and finally, I just gave up on the idea because I realized very quickly that. The Hakka area was quite large, that the language spoken in western Fujian, Minxi it's called, uh, which is clearly the origin where the Hakka first formed, then they go down to Yuebei, like Meixian and so on, that the language is in fact not yeah. that Gotong, okay? Yeah. So uh, how did they still well, so what it came agree down, to be Hakka? Well, because the language even, uh, most of the other areas which are Hakka, so Yue, uh, uh, Yue, actually they moved down from Minxi to Yuedong, so Meixian, which likes to think of itself as the capital yeah. of the Hakka, of that's course, because that's where, the, uh, yeah, that's because they, the ones that got out of China came to Huachao areas, they all came from Meixian, but the Meixian people, they all came from Minxi, okay. <laughs> and of course they all say that they came from Zhongyuan. But of course, uh, this is completely fantastical myth, myth history. But anyway, that doesn't matter. And so actually much of the rest of the Hakka diaspora inside China itself, they went from Yuedong, so Meixian, they went to Yuebei, and from Yuebei they went into up along the border of Hunan and Jiangxi. So they ended up, 
occupying the entire southern half of uh, Jiangxi as well as southern third of Jiangxi, Gannan. But there, there's a fairly great degree of common commonality to the language. Pretty really between Minxi and uh, Yuedong, it's not. But in any case, Yang Yanjie, who is from Zhengzhou, so Minnan speaking, he didn't understand either. So of course, we relied on local, often on kids, <laughs> because the kids, of course, they could speak Fudoma. But anyway, well, the first thing I can say is that as soon as I get into the field, I'm happy. Because I discover that unlike going to the library where discoveries take years, and then you're missing half of the material you need or three quarters because history passed on a very, very small portion of, and of course, it's the only elite that's writing. So to get access to Chinese society, to real Chinese people, the only way is to live in China, to be in China, to be in the villages. And of course, then you discover another China. It's a completely different China. Of course, there are relationships and you can make it. Of course, it's fascinating to see the link between text and the field. But it's very much like what a Taoist priest once said to me. The Zhao ritual, he said, is dead. That is to say, it's completely based on text, which you do exactly as it. But the exorcistic rituals, they're alive because they have to adapt to a concrete situation of a concrete person who has this problem or that problem. And so that's exactly the difference between text and field. Fieldwork, it's alive. It's living. And so, uh, yeah, this makes China real. <laughs> this makes China real. And so, of course, David Four was discovering exactly the same thing on his own back here in the Xinjiang, working on the new territories back in the 80s. And then we gradually found that we were a natural fit because we were both doing the same thing that he then called historical anthropology. And that's exactly what it is. You cannot understand history without an experience of the field. Accounts agree more, but I just feel maybe our field work experience would be very different because I'm a native Chinese, mm -hmm. but you were considered as a Laowai, a foreigner. So how would you weigh the advantages and the disadvantages of being a Laowai while doing field work? Well, in that first period, before I had this uh, cooperative agreement with the Shikagen, at that point I was only interested, still only interested in finding Taoist priests and finding what they were doing. And there I can tell you being a Laowai was an advantage because they know that you're not a possible competitor. If I were Chinese, coming to see these people and asking to see their manuscripts and even to take pictures of them, they would suspect that I was maybe going to reveal their trade secrets to priests in the next town over. So it, in fact, has an advantage. In Taiwan, the same thing. But once we were working together, that aspect of Laowai no longer had any importance whatsoever, except for, like I say, that the Wai Jiaobu arranged things, arranged things very well, that the people were very welcoming everywhere we went. Banquets, sending us down to the countryside with uh, minibuses and things like that, and many friends. It had to be, our work had always to be cooperative with the local governments. And because, like I say, it was Kujaru in that era at that time, they were very interested. We were publishing a series, and they all wanted to get their county into that series. Called Jermindi. You, you have, you <laughs> have edited more than 40 volumes. About 40 volumes, yeah. yeah. Did you share your work with those local officials? Oh, yes. How, how do they respond to your oh, they, argument? Oh, well, then, first of all, we don't go into these things about China, religious state, and so on. Uh -huh. But uh, we make very clear what we're interested in, and that we're interested in 
temples and the alliances built around temples, alliances between villages, and of course also the history of the local lineages. And so these are the two things which were, until not that long ago, still classified as from Jemishin. Now they have a tendency to pass into a much more accessible category, namely Fei Wujiu and Hua Yichan, right? That's yeah, really non-material cultural Non-material, right. But back then, you know, it's very interesting because the local officials, they're local people, most of them. And this is their culture. And we would hold conferences. So what we do, we come in and we go to the Shenzhiban, to the various offices, when Shu Ziliao, people who Bruce Waltz had called Jing Xie Hui. And we come and have a first meeting with the local government and say, find us all of the people who you think really know local history, they're local history buffs. And so they would call them in and we'd have a meeting and we would just sit and listen to these people, most of them Tui Shou Ganbu and Tui Shou Laoshi and so on. And they would say, well, this is village, you should really go see this village and it had this tradition and so on and so forth. And so, and of course, the government officials were sitting in on this and uh, hearing these people talk. And, you know, over and over again, what we heard from these Laura and Ja, because almost all of our authors were Laura and Ja, I went back to my childhood by writing this. Most of these people never written anything, never, certainly nothing more than a little article in Wing Shih Tzu And they ended up writing whole books, some of them. And so, the, again, the joy of these people in recovering their own culture. I'll tell you a story, one of the most amazing ones of all. It was in uh, Ganzhou, and we had one of our conferences there because so we would work with these people for over a year while they're writing, and we would go with them into the village and tell them, show them how to do the Diaocha, what exactly we wanted, and we didn't want them to just uh, copy the Zupu and so on and so on. Then at the end, we would have a conference, and they would each have one hour to present, and then they would discuss among. So you have these Laurenja coming from the entire county or from several counties, and, oh, you have that too. I thought that wasn't important. I have to put that in too. Uh, okay, so the story, we had this conference in Ganjo, and a Taoist priest that I had met with, my collaborator there, Liu Jinfeng from the Gannan Boguan, came from the county Chongyi, which was created after Wang Yangming, Ya, the, the Yaozu, okay? Uh, way up in the mountains on the border of Chongyi County and in Jiangxi and Hunan. That's where this Taoist priest Luo Qingdong lived. And we invited him to come to our, because we wanted him to work with Liu Jinfeng to write a, about his Taoist tradition. And so he sat through three days of these old folks uh, telling their story, and at the end, he said, we'd like you to talk about the Jiao. He says, I don't know whether I am in heaven or on earth. He said, in the Cultural Revolution, they paraded me around with a dunce cap, and I had to wear the sign of the, that was a, a morgue or whatever, a nilgue. <laughs> and now, you academics, you're at, you're calling me Laosher. I don't know what's happening to me. Well, I could go on with story after story to tell you the joy that we shared with these people having the right, being invited to talk about their own culture and their own society. And of course, the local officials recognized themselves in it. This was a time also when regional consciousness was very, very strong and developing. And so they wanted to 
have their particularities, you know, uh, regional particularities, local particularities. So it was in that context too. But even today, you know, for the last five years until this year, we've been organizing field trips with uh, students from four universities in the mainland, Zhongda here and Zhengdu uh, Dashe in Taiwan. All the students react in the same way. Well, of course, just one of the students who now teaches at Zhengdu Dashe, but he was my student in Paris. And he went with me to Huizhou. And he had been going to my classes in Paris for two years. And that's all I talk about, right? He went with me for one week. And at the end of one week, he says, I learned more in one week than in two years. I thought, well, okay, that's it. I could also talk about Tomlin. And he said the same thing. He came with me on July 2, 1997, day after Hoi Gui. And first night he spent in the mainland was in Minxi, and we stay in a half-finished hotel, and the mosquitoes all bit him instead of me. <laughs> we go on to our conference in Chengping, and then after that we go down to Yubei, to Xiaoguan Dashia, and uh, then we go down to a place called Ruyuan, a county way on the border of Guangxi. I asked Yang Yanjie to go with him, Tang Wenren, to the countryside. Tang Wenren is a specialist of historical Buddhism, and I went off with the person who became his future long-term partner, producing these books together. And after he came back from a week, what's your impression? He says, I have to start all over. Everything I knew about Buddhism was in books, and it's totally different what you find in the countryside, what you find in real society. So that's the conversion we all go through when we actually come into contact with Chinese society. Say, wow, this is a really exciting place, an exciting place to be in that context with real people. Oh, our CCS students, some of them have taken your field trip course yeah. in the past summers, and I, I know some of you are <laughs> converted. <laughs> and they are all now pursuing graduate studies. And you have been mentoring so many grad students in our center. And these days, I observe more and more students pursuing further degrees. I don't know whether it's a trend, it's a social pressure of their own desire for more knowledge. So just now you talk so much about the importance of learning from the real society by walking around and observing. But people are still trying to come to the university to study books and taking courses and to get higher degrees. If you were asked to give only one advice to those uh, students who are interested in pursuing graduate study, um, what would that be? Well, the first thing I would say to them is study the humanities. There is nothing more important to the future of humanity than the humanities. It's not the person who's going to win the race on the quantum computers or who's going to get us to Mars who are going to save this planet and save our cultures. Because no human individual exists without a relationship to his history and our historical culture. It's genetically <laughs> embedded over centuries. And it's these varieties of culture are just like the varieties of corn that they store in some frozen place in case we get some kind of plague that kills the primary corn crop today. There's this genetic cultural variety which belongs to the cultural gene pool of, the, of humanity and that makes us human. That's what makes us human. It's our culture. And to discover how we are related 
not just to our parents and our grandparents, but to the deep past. And how these cultures, with each with their own deep past, can enter into the same, I say, humanistic dialogue. That is to say, to understand a culture which is so radically different, and yet is clearly interested in the same things in the, in the end, namely human flourishing. Because that is what all religion and philosophy is about in the end. It's about human flourishing. What enables us, so the term used in Taoism is Jin, what enables a person to become a true person? What is that? What is our life about? I always say that, throw out all the definitions of religion. And I define it this way. Religion is the practice of structuring values. There is not a human alive who is not religious because your structuring values, they don't come from science. Science can help you, I would say, you know, improve around the edges and uh, get rid of ideas which are counterproductive and uh, life-threatening. But look what technology is doing to our world. It's technology that's destroying the planet, okay? I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm saying that the only way to save the planet and therefore to save the future of humanity is for us to be deeply and gratefully embedded in our cultural traditions and enter into a true dialogue with the cultures which are different from us. There is nothing more important than the humanities, all of them. Thank you very much for sharing with us your insights in Chinese society and the wisdom here at CUHK for all these years. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today for the CCS podcast series. Hope to see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for China Studies at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. We offer degrees from bachelor's to PhD with a diverse faculty dedicated to studying and understanding China from a multidisciplinary perspective. Special thanks to Yan Yichiao for the music. Please check out our website at ccs.cuhk.edu.hk or find us on social media.